Welcome everyone to the Every Other Thursday podcast, where in each episode we bring you suggestions for improving the guest dining experience and our industry roundtable, where we tackle the industry issues of the moment. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 30-minute presentation featuring our industry experts who are never shy about offering up their thoughts and ideas. Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places in the world of hospitality tabletop. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Every Other Thursday, and it's a brand new year of 2020 still. I'm Dave Turner. I'm your host here at Every Other Thursday, and I'm here along with my colleagues, Jay Alley and Greg Kirish. Hi, guys. How are you all doing today? Happy New Year. Glad to be here. Happy, happy, happy. Yeah, we. this is our second episode of the new year, the new decade. It's pretty exciting. And by the way, this is episode number seven of Every Other Thursday. That means we've been at this for 14 weeks. That's pretty good. Wow. Seems doesn't seem that long. Went by quick. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but, but does this time of the year, does it seem like it's like the longest stretch of the year? You know, does it seem like that for you? I mean, it, the daylight hours here are, are still pretty short in the northern climates and everything. And it's, it's, summer seems like it's years away. Well, usually, but here in Chicago, we're having really unusual weather. It's like uh, it's in the mid-40s right now, and it has been all – this is not a typical January. Yeah. So it doesn't quite feel like the abyss that it usually does. Yeah, I think it's – I mean, the new year is something to be really excited about. And I think that just the fact that the days are getting a little longer. So I never really felt it was like forever to get to summer. I think spring is one of the best times of the year overall, along with fall, but nah, it's, it's, it's terrific. Yeah, here along the East Coast this weekend, the temps are supposed to jump pretty good too. So anyway, I, I can't wait for summer and spring and all that. And of course, uh, right now we're looking forward to the Frankfurt show and then on to the on beyond that, looking for NRA and all that. So going to be uh, going to be an exciting year, I think. I agree. Anyway, every other Thursday, by the way, folks, is our recently launched 30 Minutes or So podcast where we showcase very interesting tabletop-related products and ideas, all with the idea of engaging the dining guests and elevating the guest dining experience, all the while helping the operator increase their profitability because, frankly, that's what it's all about. It's about creating profits for the operator through a better guest experience. And along with new products and ideas, each episode, we also want to take our vigorous, and I say vigorous, roundtable discussion on the hot topics of the moment, and we'll do it again this week. It won't be any different. So before we get into Greg's new idea, we've got to put a plug in for our sponsor, and this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. We're now nine years, guys, of being the world's go-to place for information news on the world of hospitality tabletop, Tabletop Journal where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places in the world of hospitality tabletop. And as I mentioned, we start each episode with Greg bringing us his new big idea for improving the guest experience and the offer rate of profitability. So take it away, Greg. What do you have for us this week? I have 10 genes. For those of you that don't know, this is a concept out of North Africa, typically Morocco. These 10 genes are often ceramic or terracotta. And so it's a bowl with a conical lid. And the whole point of it is, is that you put this uh, traditional Moroccan stew in it, and for lack of a better term, and the shape of the lid keeps the moisture and air flowing, recirculating back onto the product, which recreates a really wonderful succulent end product. 
So the reason I'm focusing on it, it's it, it in itself is perhaps is not the end all. What I'm looking at here, as we've been talking all along, is um, uh, our products that uh, that bring drama and fun to the tabletop for the guest. And these these tangines are typically large and it's served family style from them in the center of the table. But I'm thinking have more of these as individual size products to serve individual guests. And now if if, if anybody's not familiar with a tagine, it's sort of like looks like a teepee on a plate. Exactly. Yeah, it looks like an Indian teepee type thing. It has that conical look to it. Yeah. Just for the visual. And when you think about it, okay, so it's gonna add it's gonna add this authenticity. There's an eth- ethnic aspect to it which people are looking for. And there's a certain amount of drama. So we've talked about cloches in the past, but this is kind of the same thing where it's brought to the table with this uh, teepee-like lid on it, and then all of a sudden the waitstaff takes it off, and the uh, aroma and steam hits you, and you know you got the surprise, the drama. People are looking at it from other tables. It really encapsulates a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Now, and it's only one part of a much broader area genre if you will that we've been that we'll be talking more about about these ethnic products and bringing them down from uh, center of table to the individual place settings but i think it really touches a lot a lot of those things and the concept is simple i think most operators and dependent operators especially can handle it it's not an expensive product there's not many out there that I've seen that are on an individual size, but this might be an opportunity. Again, you know, my favorite word is dialogue. And it sets up, a, you know, a dialogue between suppliers and operators to talk about these kind of things. How can you bring as easily as possible and obviously as profitably as possible drama, fun, inclusion to the tabletop. Well, I love the idea of a tagine because it's it's certainly different when you bring it to the table. It's a great way of serving and and cooking and and all that. But I also really like the opportunity to decorate that tagine because there's a great surface there that you can sort of reinforce whatever. Yeah, I know they are in Northern Africa, kind of cooking uh, vessel and all that, but you could put lots of different, I could see lots of different designs etched on those, on particularly the ceramic ones. We have the ability to decorate it in different ways and all that. So yeah, I mean, if a restaurant has a certain seafood theme or whatever, I, I could see different types of uh, designs on it. Uh, you know, if it's more of a meat kind of theme, any kind of ethnic kind of cuisine, you be you have the opportunity to reinforce it with designs that that are from that ethnicity. Yeah, you can take it a lot of different a lot of different directions. There's lots of flexibility here. I know, what do they call that, cultural appropriation or whatever, but that's okay. I, I think people are, are, would be up for that. I think uh, it's a great differentiator for restaurants. And plus, to me, it speaks to, uh, if I was a dealer salesperson, it speaks to me in the sense of it gives the, the operator a chance to be a little bit adventuresome, but not so uh, niche that it scares customers away or people don't know what it is. It's something that's at the edges of every, everybody likes a little adventure in their dining, I think. And I think this gives people the opportunity to feel adventurous without being so adventurous. You know, it's not eating crickets kind of thing. You know what I mean? 
And you can uh, really drill down. If when you drill down into the specifics, there's a lot of good operational aspects to it. Like because it is terracotta or ceramic, it holds the heat. The foods and there's a lid, so the food stays warm as you bring it out. When you take the lid off, there's that surprise. There's that drama. There's the the blast of aroma. The visual. I mean, there's a lot of whether or not it's a tangine or a cloche. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, it really brings a lot to the tabletop. Now, even even a company uh, that's a tabletop brand or tabletop known company supplier, La Crusade, they even have tangines. I'm not familiar with their versions of them, but I suspect that they have some metal component to them, or, or maybe it's a metal with ceramic over it. I don't know. Jay, are you familiar with the La Crusade's line at all? Yeah, we have a couple of their pieces in our house, but I, I, I have no idea about the tangine side of it. Yeah. So, you know, Stobe has tangents. They're part of their ceramic line. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I think there's probably some cooking technique that you've got to learn if you're going to use them to actually cook in versus just serving in, cooking in something else and putting it into the tangent to bring to the table. But I think if you do sort of master that ability to cook in it, then I think that even adds to additional authenticity to it. Yeah. And also, again, from an operational side, there's a lot of forgiveness because of the shape and the recirculation of the water and the steam and the, and the heat within the, uh, within the uh, closed vessel, it's hard to overcook this thing. And so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of flexibility for the, for the operator. Now, Greg, if you, I know you're quite a chef, Greg, have you cooked in tagines before? I've never have. So are they like crock pots? Can you, can you just let it simmer, cook for a while? Uh, how's that work? Yes. Yes. That, that's exactly how the concept originally worked is that back in North Africa, it would be loaded with food and it would be brought to the local oven, the, the um, bread oven. And as the heat of the bread, when the bread was all baked in the morning, there was residual heat in the oven. And so these were inserted and you just let it sit there, you know, cooking crock a la crock pot all day. And at, at night, it's all done, ready to go. And so and there's lots of forgiveness there. Yeah, cool. Well, we're going to send uh, Jay out to find all the tagines in York, Pennsylvania uh, places, and he can report back to us. How about that? Remember, you heard it here first. We can do. We can do the impossible. The miracles take just slightly longer. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, something that probably not on every street corner and not for every operator, but I do think it offers, particularly uh, if somebody's trying to, as I said, uh, add a little adventure to their menu concept, something that they can bring in. And you know what? If if you're a dealer salesperson and you walk into an operator and you present the concept of cooking with tagines, I, I think that at a minimum starts the conversation and uh, probably there'd be more interest than most dealer salespeople might think. I don't know what the cost of them would be and what the sort of the operational backside would be, but I, I can't imagine it's that much more difficult than any other large serving platter or whatever. I, I, I agree. And that's, again, what we're talking about here is bringing solutions, bringing ideas, bringing concepts. It's also show business. It's a show. Yeah, yeah. To you know, to the operator. Now you know, and let's face it. You know, we I know that most operators aren't going to be adopting tan tangines, but if not tangines, something similar. You know, we we there's all these miniature Dutch ovens that work kind of similarly. That might be an opportunity. But again, bringing the idea of uh, these ideas to the hard pressed operator, and it makes you it, it makes you a source of 
a source of information, a go-to, a go-to person as a supplier. Just popped into my mind for a minute. Uh, another company that I saw at the NRA show, last year's NRA show with Tajines in it is, uh, was Chef Forward. They've got a, um, I believe it's a Spanish terracotta line that has multiple sizes of tagines in it. And so that's pretty cool. And so they're out there, they're, they're in the supply chain already, dealer sales reps. So you just got to dig around. And, you, and if, you're, if you think, yeah, but where would I get them, whatever, there are sources already existing within the food service supply area. We just mentioned a couple of them before, Staub and La Crozet. You've got Chef Forward as well. So those are around. So they're not as obscure and difficult to obtain as, as people might think. And I think that they're definitely worth your time to take, a, you know, to source a sample or two of it and take it in and show your operator. Absolutely. To Greg's word, it creates the dialogue that we think is so important. And also, to Jay's point, it creates theater. Yeah, the thing is, too, you know, we talk a lot about the, the guest experience and stuff. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that seems to be popping up all the time, especially in some of the high level chain restaurants like the big steakhouses, the big seafood places, and everybody's racking their brain to try to find a way to increase their profits and their volume. And, you know, one of the things that you stand back from afar and you look at it and you go, it's a really great idea, but, you know, if you're not a little bit creative, you're just doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And we all know that that's not exactly the smartest way to approach stuff. So, I mean, I think uh, all of this stuff starts the dialogue and starts people thinking and you know while you're just talking about it i mean it's i think one of the things we should talk about one of the episodes is is pre-dinner and post-dinner what you can do with that segment of a fine dining meal to increase the check average and uh, i think you know i think all of these things come into play i mean coffee shouldn't be just the end of the meal there's a lot more that you can do uh, right after you've finished a wonderful meal in a restaurant so it'd be fun to talk about that absolutely absolutely well another good job greg Super. We're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to kick into our roundtable discussion. And we're going to be talking about distribution and food service supply chain distribution and where it goes in 2020 and what the roundtable participants think will be happening in the coming year. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than eight years, Tabletop Journal has been raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. Using the hashtag Tabletop Matters, Tabletop Journals connected the kindred spirits of the hospitality world all around the globe. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Now, back to our podcast. Hey, everybody, we're back again from our break, and we're getting ready for our roundtable discussion. And this week, we want to talk about distribution. There's a lot going on in the world of distribution and food service and equipment and supplies, in particular, and tabletop, and some consolidation. We've talked about that. And I want to open it up to our group here and talk about how you see the distribution models rearranging the chairs around the table, how they're going to be arranged in the coming year. Jay, you've got some thoughts. I know you're an expert. You've been dealing with distribution and changes in distribution for probably what? Forever. And and it certainly has changed a lot in the last couple of years. What do you think the year 2020 is going to bring to distribution in equipment and supplies and food service? Well, I think it's just, you know, that's a, that's a neat question because I think there's a lot of topics that are part of the answer to that. I think one of the things I think will absolutely continue is consolidation and the big guys swallowing up the smaller guys and, and all of that stuff. I mean, it seems to be a trend that's was really getting 
some steam in last year, and I think it's going to continue. The thing that I think about when I think about that is, is that everybody's getting bigger, and the you know the dealers buy up somebody who's say out of their main geographical area, whatever that means, and then all of a sudden, you know, you got what it does to like the representatives who carry the lines to these dealers. It can change their game up. It can be really good for some. It could be a disaster for some others. So it's an interesting situation that's taken place. And and the thing that scares me as a, as a relatively small supplier to the industry, I mean, we have a, a nice product. We do a decent volume. But when you start to look at some of the things that the high-quality dealers sell, uh, you know, expensive pans, expensive flatware, I mean, you got the chemicals in the paper and all of that good stuff. It'd be interesting to see what the smaller supplier is, what happens to us. Because my, my feeling has always been as a sales manager representing a relatively small line compared to some of this really big stuff is from the independent side and even from the distributor side, when you, the DSR steps out of the door of his company on Monday morning, obviously the, the stuff that he sells the most of takes priority in his day. So as his day goes along and depending on the customers that they call on, he or she calls on some of the smaller products, even though they're very important, you know, sometimes they may run out of time to, to, to be able to talk about those. And then the more things that they get, under the roof and the more geographical area that's expanded, it's interesting to see what, what, what will happen with the service levels and all of that. What are some of the smaller supply? Cause we got a lot of very small suppliers and we, we can talk about those, those and what may or may not happen to some of those in the future, but in tabletop in particular, we've got a lot of, let's call them under $20 million, under $30 million kind of companies. And what do you think companies that are in that kind of area, let's say, whether they're glassware, flatware, dinnerware, or accessories, whatever they may be, light table lighting. What do you think those kinds of companies generally have to do to be successful uh, in 2020? I mean, there's a lot going on around them. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's another great question. And, and, you know, when you say $20 million coming from my years in the business where I was always involved with a higher quality crystal company, you know, anywhere between five and $12 million is a, is a, a really big, solid crystal kind of a, of a situation. Commodity glass, I mean, there's some companies that do $10 million in one pattern collection. So, you know, so for me, the, my perspective might be a little different if I was talking personally about our stuff. But, but I think the answer to your question is, you know, good prices, good quality. We've talked about that before in, in all levels of tabletop flatware, China crystal. Everybody's quality has gotten better. Everybody's got good prices. But I go back to, and I think this will hold true for the biggest distributors in the country, is not everybody at every level has high quality service to support their brands. And, you know, what does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. But if you're if you're a massive distributor and you've got so much more now under your roof and your, your DSRs have so many more products that they can sell, so many lanes that they can travel in, how are they going to bring super high quality service to the restaurateurs that they go and visit? And then as suppliers, it's the same thing. How, how do the suppliers give world-class service? And the other side of it for, say, someone like us that's a small company, how do we get the attention of the DSRs for these biggest companies where they have so much on their plate and they have their times in such demand by their owners? So, you know, it, it, it's going to be an interesting thing. And, uh, you know, my feeling is like on our company, we need to try to help the dealers as much as we can by getting more of our information into the hands of, the, of their potential customers. So talking more and trying to, to communicate more with end users all the while, communicating with our dealers and making sure that everybody's in the loop. And then, you know, and then providing world-class service because at the end of the day, the other side of the coin is you can have the greatest product in the world. And some companies that we all know real well that had $150, $160 million businesses and now because of a lot of reasons, one of them I think is 
the ability to provide good service, some of those things have shrunk dramatically in half in some cases. Greg, when you were in uh, coffee, how did you get, I mean, I, I know coffee is, is a, a lot, much larger category, but uh, Jay's point is well taken. How do you get the information out to the marketplace, to the front lines, to the operators? When you were in the coffee segment, how did you get, because coffee, there's, there's so many different pieces of information and nuances about coffee. How did you get that information out to the operator to differentiate your particular brands? Well, it's, it's kind of the classic marketing promotion model that's that's uh, that's changing. But, you know, you, you go down, you put as many arrows in your quiver as possible. So, you know, you had at, at the time, there was a lot of just print advertising and PR, getting getting information through the journals and uh, the industry, industry rags. Then as, And then, you know, trying to get information out through online. And then, you know, mostly, to tell you the truth, through the through DSRs or in-house salespeople, so I guess the, 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 the and we know this whole mix is cha- is changing, and so I guess the question you you're asking is is that where what are the proportions going to be going forward? And I just don't know. A lot of people are putting a lot of emphasis on online, but how many operators are sitting there saying, "I need, I want to revamp my coffee service. I'm going to look." Blogs, you know, I don't know if that's if, if that's the, if that's the case or not. I think there's still a big human component. I think direct, you know, sales and DSRs out there are going to make a big difference. So that would so what you and and I I don't want to mishear what you're saying, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is is there's enormous educational component that needs to be driven probably by uh, the smaller manufacturers. And that would imply so that you're not re-educating new people, you know, 100% of the time uh, every year. Yeah, you, you're going to have, a, there's hopefully some longstanding relationships where the education, the foundation of the, the brand and product education for a small brand, like, like a Stolzel J, where you educate them. And then it's a question of just updating the education all through that pipeline, whether, whether it's the local representative, the dealer network that you have out there, so that you continue to build that bond of trust and relationship. Is, is that about right? You did an excellent job of uh, clarifying, and uh, and it's much appreciated. But uh, you know, but this is what we've been talking about. When I talk about these uh, uh, new products, ideas that every every week, it's again having a reason for that operator to talk to you. Here you are, you know, hopefully coming in with new interesting ideas, new interesting concepts. And granted, they're not going to accept most of them, but you become his trusted source, then the operator is willing to carve out some time to talk with you. And that's really what, what this is about. And it's an investment. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. Everybody is looking for the silver bullet. And I don't think there is a silver bullet. It's a lot of blocking and tackling out there. Yeah. And as, as Greg was saying, I think really it's an educational process that, and it has to probably start with the manufacturer. And then to Jay's point earlier, manufacturers' representatives aren't likely to keep lines like they used to in the past for you know long periods of time, decades in some cases. So the the it's incumbent on the the manufacturer to educate 
the reps, keep them as long as they can in terms of uh, turnover so they're not always educating, uh, beginning the education process from square one, but then also updating the education and building that bond of trust between the manufacturer and their frontline brand ambassadors in the local markets, who then transfer that information to the dealer and distribution community, I suppose. Is that about right, Jay? Yeah, I mean... Yes, I, I, absolutely. In theory, is one hundred percent correct. I, my opinion is the the reality of it is, is is that I look back at when we started Luigi Bormioli and Stolzel from day one, where we had not one case of business in the in, in this industry, and what we had to do is we we had to number one introduce ourselves to the customer base, which was the restaurants and golf course, you know, all that stuff, the, the potential end user customer. But what happened is we started to educate the customers, and then they started to request it from the dealer, or in some cases, we would actually get an order, kind of knew what the dealer wanted for margins, or I would ask, and then before we gave a quote back, we would plug in the dealer's margin. I think that in my personal opinion, that is going to get the educational side of it is going to become more and more important. I think if if you're a small company and you're not talking to the end user customer, trying to create interest so that they talk to their dealer salesman. The dealer salesman can call you if they know you and you're working with your dealer, which you should be. That's going to just, in my opinion, just intensify. Who, who does, Jay, just a, just a question to interrupt you for a second. Who should be doing that educating of the operator? Because that's, that's a long way down the food chain. Yeah, it has to be coming from us, the factory. I mean, I you know that's why websites and you're saying that education process from uh, we're going to bypass the distribution network. I, I don't say bypass them. I, I I say you include them. You should. They should know what you're doing. But yeah, I mean the the thing is, if if let's say we introduce a new product and we have a promotion or whatever we're doing, if you just send that out to everybody in the dealer network and you just sit there and don't do anything else, I think you're going to fail miserably because if you nobody can duck the reality of everybody has so much to talk about. In the dealer case, tens of thousands of products under one roof. So how, how really are you going to get, you know, promotions have windows. They only go for so long. How are you going to get all of that out to your people? So what, what, we, what I think you need to do is you need to start building a consumer base on your own in the areas where you have all your dealer partners. Once you get a response from that customer, fire it to your dealer guy or gal to follow up on and, and, and even help with that follow-up process. I just think that you got to take control of your of your own business. It's like in the retail side of it. Years ago when I was in retail, you'd walk in the Marshall Fields and you'd meet with the buyer. They'd buy stuff, they'd put it on the shelves. Fast forward that 15, 18 years from when I started, all of a sudden now the store didn't do any work. If they had confidence in your line, they would give you so much space in the store. You had to merchandise the end caps, merchandise the shelves. You had to do it all, set the displays, Back then, they didn't have so few, you know, it's count inventory, everything, everything. Yeah, I think Greg, you've you've been a marketing guy for some some in, in some pretty noisy categories, and I think that it does put a lot of pressure onto manufacturers, since the world, as Jay said, is a noisy world. But it puts a lot of pressure on the manufacturer to have clear and distinct messages of who they are and why their product is special and why an operator should consider their product versus all the other millions of products that they could consider in that same category. How do you do that? Absolutely. Well, you know, again, this is what we've been talking about. This is one of the things that uh, all these products I talk about every week. What you're doing is you're creating ammunition, a reason for the operator to carve time out of his or her busy day to talk with you. You want to get them to the point where they think looking at you as an information source, an inspiration 
And, I, and I'm not speaking, I don't think, in hyperbola. They want somebody to come through the door and, and, and tell them what they might, solutions, ideas that might help them in their busy days. And so all these things that we're talking about, whether they're, in the past episodes, bone marrow spoons or cloches or, tan, or this week, tangines, you know, they in and of itself, they might not be adaptable to that specific op- operation, but but what it, you're doing is you're developing a reputation as someone that has valid ideas, things that the operator should be talking about and are thinking about and doesn't have time to scan the horizon for. You want to be the information source. You want to be the go-to company. And then from that point, then you develop this relationship to move your uh, the main the main the main products in your product line, and I mean, do you, would you agree with that, Jay? Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with it. I, I you know I I think we, the things that we've talked about, right? I mean, and here's the reality of it in my mind, and I think it's a, it's a cold hard fact. All of these ideas that, that we're talking about on our, on this program and, and stuff that we kick around, they're all in, incredibly valid. If the if the end user restaurateur never gets to see it. It's not a waste of our time because, I mean, I think a lot of people will listen to this and they'll take it away. But at the end of the day, how are you going to get someone who's got a full bag, whether whether it's an independent rep, by the way, or a major dealer? Because the independent reps, I mean, they got eight lines that create 90 percent of their commissions, maybe 15, 18 lines in the bag in total. And everybody in that representative's bag is vying for their time to get in front of the dealer or whatever. So let yeah, it is. It's definitely a share of mine. Yeah. So let's let, let's take one instance. Let's take pick, pick the bone marrow spoon, pick, pick whatever you want to pick something very unique. You got an idea. If you put together a little sheet on it with all the pertinent details and, and some fun, humorous facts about it, yada, yada, and you had a database in your computer of 1,500 to 2,000 end-user restaurants, and you could just bundle that thing into the system and hit a button, and that communication goes out to not only the end-user restaurants, but it goes to, say, the person in the in the head dealership who is charged with disseminating information to the sales force and all that stuff. That's To me, that's the way you would get response. To, to give all that literature to, to a sales reps and dealers that are so busy in your day they can't see straight and expect them to pull it out of the bag, I think, it, I think it's a... Uh, it won't work, I don't think. I'll just tell you my experience with Tabletop Journal, though. We've been able to break through, but we're on so many different platforms. It's, you know, bringing our message forward on six, eight, ten different platforms, plus our outbound newsletter. So even in the publishing and the information sharing category, that's a noisy, noisy category, too. And so how do you get yourself heard in that? And and, you've got, and the answer is there isn't one single silver bullet that does it. You've got to, because if you send out, to go back to your point, Jay, if you send out a thousand person email blast, the likely openhood of that is single digits, number one. And then if you do get them to open it, the likely click through on it is another single digits. Now, fortunately, at Tabletop Journal, we, we've got a, um, a newsletter that opens up in the 40s, but that didn't happen overnight. We had to build that up. So it, it, it's noisy whether you're selling uh, tagines, glassware, or even a concept like Tabletop Journal. People are barraged with so many different types of information, and you can't just be in one particular forum, email, which is great. I love email. Yeah, I agree with you. That was, that was just an example. You know, you and I talk a lot about. I heard there's a company in this in, in this business that has a product called a Glen Glass. One of the most 
well-known pieces of product in, in, in a drinking vessel for a specific purpose in the world. And, and we do a big number with it, but the number that we do is it, uh, opposed to what that product should do is minuscule. And when someone says to me, well, why aren't we selling a whole lot more? It certainly isn't because the product's not saleable and it certainly isn't because it's too expensive or any of the common objections somebody might raise. It's simply because we can't get the information in front of enough people fast enough to translate it into orders. So one of, one of the things, and maybe it's pie in the sky on my side, but if I was starting a new company up from today, like happened in the past where, where we, had, we had all these initial challenges, I would create a department as soon as my budgets could afford it to be simply an informational processing department and an informational provider. So I would have a full-time person in my company that all that person, he or she would be doing would be transferring information to different venues so that they make sure they understand what we've got going on, what we're all about, what our products are about, and, and that kind of thing. I don't think anybody to this day has that. They, they rely on their... You know. And the communications can't be fluff. It has to be well-thought-out, factual, marketplace-centric information that that and, and and put together in a in a, in a uh, summarized fashion that can be digested very easily. This it's 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 a lot more difficult than it sounds, but critical. Yeah, but one of the so one of the things that, that I think about and you know there's a lot smarter people in this industry than me, but think about the amount of product that's purchased from some of these big internet companies where they're not talking to anybody; they're just simply going on a site and clicking on a button and getting products. I mean, that's a phenomenon. So how do you, how do you, you know, I mean. That to me is a, there, there's, listen, nobody's going on, on Amazon or any of these other internet sites, uh, Webstaurant or whatever. Nobody's going on any of them be, without information. And the question, in, in, the, in, in some cases, a lot of those clicks are not buying clicks. They're information gathering clicks. And. I think we've tried to tell people from the very beginning at Tabletop Journal is that really, I believe that uh, strong brands are built with three things. First of all, you have to be exactly who you say you are. You must be authentic. Second of all, in, in, in a lot of people, here's where a lot of people fall down, is your message, whatever the message is you give, it's got to be consistent. And when I say message consistent, I mean the people who represent your product have to also reflect your product reflect that messaging that you want. So the message needs to be consistent across your trade show booth, for instance, must look like you, the message that you want to have for your brand. Cause it will, that's, that's a huge part of it. Everything down to the business cards and everything else. But the final thing it's authenticity and consistency. But the final thing, and this is where most companies, I believe, fall down, particularly the smaller companies, is the frequency. It's such a noisy world out here. They don't have the budgets to get the frequency of their messaging out there. And, and if big companies want to swamp little companies, it's going to be in the area of frequency because they can simply afford to do that. But Dave, after I, I add to that, not just flogging out communications, but meaningful communications. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're correct. You're correct. Well, this has been a great, great roundtable. And we, we were originally, the idea was to talk about distribution and everything. And this, the things that we were talking about are major, major issues in distribution. And for particularly from the supplier side, but also the supply chain people too, because their world is a very competitive world. Why should you buy from one dealer versus another dealer? because there isn't any markets that I'm aware of where the dealer has the market all to themselves. And then you have the internet guys, Jay, like you said. So it's a very competitive world at that level too. And then of course it is at the operator level. 
So this is a story that uh, a discussion that we're going to continue. I'm really excited about the year of 2020. I think it's going to be a fabulous year. We're going to see a lot. The landscape's going to change dramatically, and I couldn't be more excited. So great job today, guys. We'll pick this ball up again in two weeks, and we'll we'll go again. Anything else from your side? No, looking forward to the next one. All right, guys. Listen, go have a good couple of weeks, and we'll be back to you all in two weeks' time. Thanks, for everybody, for checking in with Every Other Thursday. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than eight years, Tabletop Journal has been raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. Using the hashtag TabletopMatters, Tabletop Journal has connected the kindred spirits of the hospitality world all around the globe. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com.